0: So I once heard that sex is only 10% of marriage. Unless you're not having it, then it's 90%. (laughs) So how is it that something that we are designed for can be so tricky, so difficult to navigate? I mean, when God made Adam and Eve, it was pretty obvious they were created physically with one another in mind. And so, I wonder the question comes to my mind where is the source of the disconnect that so many couples encounter in their sex life? And truthfully, that all of us at one point or another encounter in this intimate part of our marriage. And then, more importantly, how can we learn to resolve the conflicts that keep us apart so that we can begin to experience the intimacy and the satisfaction? that God intended in sex. I'm Kelly J. Grace, and you're listening to Divine Connections. This is a podcast about connecting the truth you believe to the life you really live. This is Episode 8, Sacred Sex, how Christian couples can resolve conflicts and enjoy sex more. Now. In this opening season of Divine Connections, I've been sharing 13 life-changing lessons that I've learned in over 50 years of walking with Jesus. And today I am sharing a personal, and I mean about as personal as it can get, lesson about sex in marriage. And once again, I'm going to give you the takeaway right at the get-go. Because when it comes to sex in Christian marriages— I learned that God created it, and he said it's all very good. Now, that lesson has helped me frame how I've approached any and every problem that I've ever encountered relating to sex in my marriage. So let's set the stage for this episode by reminding ourselves of the creation story in Genesis. And this is where we come across that little phrase that we so often overlook when we start experiencing problems in the most intimate part of our marriage. This is Genesis one thirty one. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. So, okay, technically, he had not yet made Eve but he had made adam and eve is taken from adam so the point is that everything god made from the world the oceans the sky the plants and animals all of the um the processes that we see all the way through to adam and eve and the institution of marriage itself was in god's opinion all very good. And that includes sex. Now, I used the phrase sacred sex in the title of this episode because, in the context of marriage, sex is sacred. The dictionary defines sacred as religious rather than secular. So maybe you might think of sacred music as compared to secular music. But sex is also sacred because it was it exists within the teachings of our christian faith surrounding marriage as an institution that was imagined created and established by god it was designed by him and established by him and he said it's very good so in the new testament we also see this picture of the church as the bride of christ And the Apostle Paul says that marriage is symbolic of that union between Christ and the church. He calls it a great mystery, which probably means that you and I are not going to be able to comprehend the full meaning and importance of marriage. But we should acknowledge at the very minimum that it was God's idea. And that he included sex as one of the defining components of marriage. And in fact, sex is central to that mysterious process of the two becoming one. Now, I want to inject a little disclaimer here at the very beginning. (laughs) This is a podcast. This is not an in-depth marriage counseling session. We cannot explore here all of the possible baggage or damage or wrong beliefs that two people can bring into a marriage that could actually short-circuit what God intended for them to experience. But today we can, in this episode, look at a few basic biblical principles and then some very common, in fact, the most common um, Conflicts that come up in Christian marriages surrounding sex, and I want us to let the scriptures guide us toward resolving those conflicts conflicts excuse me um, <clears throat> once again, the title of this podcast is Divine Connections, and my goal is to help us connect the truth we believe from the Word of God. To the lives we actually live day in and day out that are supposed to glorify God, that are supposed to be examples of what happens when His Word comes in and brings light and life into our daily lives and helps conform us and the way we live to Christ. So, in this intimate area of sex in marriage, I know it can wig us out a little bit to think about it as spiritual, as sacred, but it is. So I want to talk about the three most common areas of conflict around sex and how we might resolve those. So the first is, <laughs> across the board, frequency. How often you're going to have sex. The next is the unresolved offenses that happen in a marriage that affect sex, frequency, and all the rest. And the last is one that I call selfish sex. Now, before we get very far, I want to point out two books that I highly recommend. And in fact, on my website, um, I have a post called Sex Super Glue for Your Marriage, and you'll find these two books both referenced in that at kellyjgrace.com. So, the two books um, you're going to find in these two books that they both contain a lot of information that can help you if you've experienced either medical issues. Or a psychological problem that's disrupting the normal sexual relationship in marriage. Um, so you'll find those referenced in, uh, as I said, in that blog post, Sex Super Glue for Your Marriage, and that's at kellyjgrace.com. Okay, so let's go back to these three common conflicts. So frequency gets the most attention, but I've discovered over my years of ministering to Christian women, that it's not quite as straightforward as just women not having as much interest in sex or having a lower sex drive, libido. Because as the conversations with women would progress, other issues kind of percolated up. And I I came to believe that I think it's those issues that are really what are dousing the flames of sexual desire for many, many Christian women. And so I want to talk about some of those. And the first is just unresolved offenses. So what is that? What are they? Well, they often spring from wounded feelings. We get hurt by something that's said. Anything from a harsh... Comment or public criticism, or just repeated insensitivity. Maybe it's an angry outburst or controlling and intimidating language and behavior. Maybe it's emotional neglect, coldness, dismissiveness, exclusion of you as a partner, selfish decision making, not allowing a woman's voice in decisions that guide the marriage, the family, and so forth. Especially decisions around finances or activities or purchases. Significant differences in parenting style and discipline can relate to these unresolved offenses. You take offense at the way that your spouse is disciplining or how they parent your kids. Or just an overall lack of a sense of partnership and sharing in both childcare, household chores and maintenance, you, you know, you feel like you're in it all alone, like it's all put on your plate. So I think you can see how daily life and the layered responsibilities of work, of parenting, and even simply adjusting to sharing a life and a home with someone else can provide so many opportunities for hurt feelings. And often women told me that they didn't share with their husband how hurt they felt. But the wounded feelings triggered this emotional and, of course, a sexual shutdown. That just compounded the problem because now the husband feels rejected or even angry. He feels deprived of something he thought was going to be part of a normal married life. And, of course, she's feeling hurt and confused and now she's doubting her value in his eyes she doubts his love for her so the first guiding principle that can help us from the scriptures is for us to learn from ephesians 4:25 to tell the truth now what this adds up to is this there and this is from the message i should say i sometimes i really like how the message brings the truth of the scripture into the everyday language, um, the way you and I think and process things. So it says this, this is Ephesians 4.25 from the message. What this adds up to then is this, no more lies, no more pretense. Tell your neighbor, or in our case, your husband, the truth, or maybe your wife, maybe you're a guy listening to this. Tell your husband or your wife, your spouse, the truth. In Christ's body, we are all connected to each other after all. And when you lie to others, you end up lying to yourself. Okay, now, I'm just going to say, with this whole area of un- unresolved offenses, if something happens, some your spouse says something, does something— and you feel hurt or wounded, slighted, ignored, whatever by it, you have a response to it, if you can overlook that, if you can forgive that, if you can show forbearance and tolerance and acceptance of another person as less than perfect, do that. That is great. But if you can't, or if the same thing happens over and over, you know, kind of like when you were a kid and you skinned your knee, and then before it got fully healed, you fell and skinned it again. If that's what keeps happening in your relationship, they keep doing or saying the same thing that just opens up that wound over and over again. I'm telling you, you have to love that person enough to tell them the truth. That's what Ephesians 4.25 is saying. No more lies, no more pretenses. Don't let it go by without addressing it. And I get it. I know that is hard, but your spouse is not a mind reader. Often they don't know how much what they said or did hurt you. And they obviously don't know that there's ongoing damage being done. It's eroding your relationship. So go and tell them their offense. You know, in Matthew eighteen fifteen, it says, if your brother sins against you, go, tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Now that's, you know, for us as Christians, how we ought to be in our relationships with one another. How much more does that truth apply to a Christian couple to a Christian inside marriage. We owe it to one another that when we are hurt and wounded, we go and say something. If we can't get over it, then we're going to have to deal with it. That's the obligation. So you have to be loving enough to give them a chance to fix things or Satan will take advantage of the situation, and he will drive a wedge between the two of you. Now, I want you to listen this is ephesians four uh let's see twenty six to thirty two it says and don't let uh don't sin by letting anger control you. don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil, and I want to tell you. Um, oftentimes we think of anger, you know, as a distinct response, but anger is often a subsequent response to hurt. Hurt is what's underneath. That's the actual offense. And then we get get angry about it or um, we become resentful. We start looking for ways to get revenge, to get even, or to punish that other person. So Ephesians goes on. It says, don't use any foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. And I like what the King James says. This is verse verse 29 of chapter 4 of Ephesians. It says, let everything you say impart grace to the hearer. So when you go and tell the truth, there is a way to do it without, you know, pointing fingers and making a harsh a- accusation so to speak, but you want to appeal to this person's love for you and say, you know, you may not realize it, but when you said such and such, wow, that hurts me. And I'm finding it hard to respond to you. So, you know, I need for you to know that is that damages me, and damages our relationship. Okay, verse 30. And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. So get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God, through Christ has forgiven you. So that's the principle. If we take that truth, that scriptural truth and bring that into our lives and apply it to this most intimate marriage part of our marriage, to our sex lives, we will find, that we start little by little learning how to live with one another with forgiveness, tenderheartedness, kindness, that that will be what characterizes our relationship. And when we do mess up or they mess up, we can talk about it, speaking the truth in love, and come to a resolution where we achieve that, that we give them a chance to ask for our forgiveness. We offer that forgiveness and the offense is removed and Satan has no place to gain a foothold in our thoughts, in our minds, and in that intimate part of our relationship. Okay, now let's talk about what I call, for lack of a better term, selfish sex. And selfish sex is something that I came across over and over again, ministering to women in Africa. But it happens in the Western world, too. (laughs) And selfish sex is just what it sounds like. It's using a spouse to achieve your own satisfaction without caring about theirs. Now, in those books that I mentioned to you, uh, one is called... um, I think it's called Sex for the Good Girl. In Anyway, in that book, they mention this statistic. 95% of men climax during sex. 48% of women do. Okay, that is a huge, huge gap. And, you know, I just have to ask the question of men who usually, again, frequency is is the issue they have. They want sex more often, they say, than their wives do. But I would turn that question around and say, well, would you still be interested in all this sex if it did not end for you in an orgasm? If there was no completion of the act, no satisfaction at the end of it, would you still have such interest? So here's the thing. How are we going to resolve this conflict that happens? And maybe it happens based on biology or physiology, how we're actually made, that 95% of men reach a climax and only 48% of women do. How are we going to resolve that? Well, what came to mind uh, years ago about this was part of that old Anglican wedding vows. uh, And it has this fascinating phrase in it. And I don't know, you've maybe never heard this as part of the wedding ceremony performed in a church but the old phrase says with my body i thee worship now one commentator years and years and years ago said this about that uh, he was comment commenting on anglican the anglican wedding ceremony he said the husband is vowing to honor to respect and to show the due reverence for his bride to actually use his body to worship her This takes the self-centeredness out of sex and makes it a ministration to her, for her, as an expression of the value he places on her, the estimation of her worth in his eyes. In other words, she is cherished. Now, I want you to listen to the command from 1 Peter 3.7, given to husbands, and this is the King James Version. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Now, that is a strong exhortation to husbands to dwell with their wives according to knowledge, to know this woman, to know her. The way she thinks, the way she feels, to know how she may respond, so that he then develops that sensitivity to her that helps him not offend her in what he says and does. And then it says, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. Now it's easy for us to, you know, start focusing on uh, Popeye biceps, right? And think that this has this relates just to physical strength. And I I think that's part of it, um, that a husband is not to physically intimidate and control a wife, but also the fact, if you go back to that statistic that 98% of men achieve sexual satisfaction and only 48% of women, that means that she is at somewhat of a disadvantage in a sexual encounter, isn't she? It's going to be more difficult, more challenging for her to experience the same satisfaction and enjoyment from this act as he will. And I believe this verse is putting some onus on a husband to take the time to invest what it takes to learn about his wife emotionally, spiritually, and physically and come to the place where he brings her up to the same level that he is in enjoying this thing that they have. They, as it says, they're heirs together of the grace of life. This is, you know, sex is part of God's gracious gift to us in marriage. And I don't think that God's intent was that 95% of men achieve satisfaction and only 48% of women. I don't think that's part of God's design. I think that the maybe the difficulty and the challenge that we women face is actually something that can work in our favor in marriage. So let's talk about this. Dwell with her according to knowledge. Well, let me ask you, if you're a woman, a wife listening to this, how can you help your husband to know you better well i go back to ephesians 4:25 tell him the truth tell him how you feel about his words about his actions about his lovemaking now season your words with grace you're not i mean in the midst of a sexual encounter is not the time to berate this guy it's the time to gently and Lovingly help lead him to making love to you and with you. So, you know, help him to know you and to love you well. Again, if you don't climax as easily or as quickly as he does, you're going to have to help him discover how to use his body to worship you, as the old Anglican vow puts it. Now, that's a challenge that I'm giving to you. We can sit around and bemoan the condition, or we can take some action and do something about it. So I'm going to say, give the guy a break, okay? Help him out. If there's an offense that's caused you to keep saying no to him, you're In a way, you're cutting off your nose to spite your face. Sex, again, is part of what God says indeed is very good. You need to learn how to handle those offenses and learn to forgive more, but also learn to go and tell him if if there's a barrier that's been erected emotionally, because it's going to flow over into the sexual realm and become a barrier there. So again, Let's drop back into Genesis, and this time Genesis 2, 24 and 25, because this is another principle around resolving the conflicts that happen in, in, within marriage, and especially in the realm of our sexual uh, life together. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, or cleave to her, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay, they were both naked and not ashamed. If you want to enjoy sex with your spouse, you're going to have to get over being shy about describing what you like in bed. This isn't just about taking your clothes off. This is about telling the truth about what you enjoy and what you don't enjoy, what turns you on and what turns you off. And once again, those books that I mentioned go into a great deal of detail about how you can make this fun and playful. But the bottom line is that None of us are mind readers. We need to speak up. You should be asking, if you're the wife, ask him what he likes. I want you to commit to charting a path to joint satisfaction, that both of you will find satisfaction in your sexual life together. Now, I believe, I really do believe that most husbands want to please their wives most men find that a turn on. Um, So I want you to tell him the truth. You need to tell him what curls your toes. You need to explore and experiment and talk your way to a better experience for both of you. And I promise you, you will be glad you did. And you know, the beauty of nighttime is you can have candlelight or low light and all of your blushing from trying to tell him things is not going to be, it's not going to be as embarrassing as you think. And once you hurdle that, you know, I think we're going to find that many of these issues around frequency, which I told you has been, uh, is typically the most reported conflict that couples have in regards to sex. But the truth is, getting on the same wavelength is going to be tricky. So, I mean, I want you to think about it this way. <clears throat> Excuse me. Like, for example, are you always hungry when he's hungry? How about sleepy? Are are you always sleepy when he's sleepy? Of course not. I mean, that's ridiculous. And let's have a little bonus here. Because a woman's sex drive, her libido, is tied to her menstrual cycle. You know, that's... It's just that. It is a cycle. It's not a consistent um, static factor in her day-to-day life. But, you know, men, they don't cycle the way we do. Their libidos remain pretty much consistent all month long. So how are you two going to get in sync and stay in sync? Well, again, talking is your best friend here. If you've resolved any issues over hurt feelings and you've begun a conversation about what you need from him so that you can fully enjoy this and you can ultimately reach a climax, in other words, w- that the two of you are both sexually satisfied by the end of any lovemaking, then the two of you are going to get closer and closer to finding a rhythm that works for both of you. You know, sex is like anything else. It can become a habit. It's not not just what a couple does in bed, but how often they choose to do it, it begins to form a pattern with the rest of our life. Now, here's a little true confession time. <laughs> the more my husband and I have sex, the more I was interested in having sex, So you've probably heard that average is 1.2 times per week. Well, let me ask you, do you want to just be average? The two of you get to decide, okay? You'd get to decide on frequency. But the thing is, I would urge that both of you decide, that both of you come to a place where you're happy with the interaction. Both of you are free, Feel fully free to initiate sex, and both of you are pretty willing to enter in, even if it hadn't been your idea, because you know in the end it's going to be enjoyable for both of you. So, enough said about that, okay? But I want to mention an old article that I happened to read in a hair salon years ago in a Cosmo magazine because where else would you read Cosmo, right? (laughs) And then, oddly enough, the same kind of information popped up when I was doing my research for that blog post on sex in marriage on, of all places, WebMD. Now, the Cosmo article described an experiment that one wife decided to try. She decided she would have sex with her husband for seven nights in a row just to see how she would feel. About him and about sex at the end of the week. And her own response shocked her. She said by the third night, she experienced multiple orgasms, and she also felt afterwards so much closer to her husband emotionally as she snuggled in with him. And then came Friday night when they were meeting friends at a restaurant for dinner. Her husband grasped her hand as they were crossing the street, and then he guided her into the restaurant with his hand at the small of her back. And he was talking and laughing with her as they reached the table where the friends they were meeting were already seated. And not very long after they got seated, the other woman said, hey, let's come on with me to the ladies' room. And as soon as they were away from the table, her friend grabbed her arm and said, what is with you two? You look like a couple that just fell madly in love last week, not like a couple in their 11th year of marriage. What is going on? And, you know, she said that she felt like she and her husband had become that couple in quotes, the ones that she had seen many times before in restaurants who actually looked at one another in the eyes, who talked and laughed together over dinner, who touched often. And who seemed truly and deeply connected to one another. And she said the thing that shocked her is it had taken less than a week. Now, reading that WebMD article will explain some of the physiology behind what the Cosmo couple experienced, especially that closer bond that they had. That is actually rooted in a physiological and neurochemical response. Um, And of course, God knew all that, right? But it also references uh, some books written by couples who documented their own kind of experience. Um, They had, you know, an experiment that they conducted where they committed to having sex every night for some extended period of time. Now, neither of those books are from a Christian perspective. But that doesn't mean you can't glean some useful information from them. But I would just urge you, if you read the WebMD article, which I also referenced in that blog post, you'll see these two books, and I want you to definitely read a bunch of the reviews on Amazon before you ever bought either of those books. So really, I've shared all of this last information just simply to encourage you to think about what you may be missing out on in your marriage. I want to ask you, are you deriving all of the emotional connection, the physical satisfaction, and that deep spiritual bond that God intended in marriage? You know, if not, I want to challenge you to make sure that you hold your sex life up to a few of the truths That I've mentioned in this episode, and that you'll let the Holy Spirit guide you even in this most intimate area of your life. So, just to review, first of all, God saw all that He created, and indeed, it was very good. Second, the man was to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they were to become one flesh. And third, the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Now, I want to add one other scripture in this, and again, this is going to come from the message. This is 1 Corinthians 7, 1-6, to and in this passage of scripture, the Apostle Paul is actually responding to questions about marriage and about sex that he had received from the believers in Corinth. So, you know, this is not a modern-day problem. As I said, human beings have a limited repertoire of behavior. So the problems that you and I encounter are super common to all people in all generations. I mean, maybe the Corinthians didn't have to deal with trying to get their kids off of, you know, social media or video games. But in terms of human relationships, they had the same issues that we have. So they had written to Paul with some questions, and here are his answers. He says, Now, getting down to the questions that you ask in your letter to me, first of all, is it a good thing to have sexual relations? Certainly, but only within a certain context. It's good for a man to have a wife and for a woman to have a husband. Sexual drives are strong. But marriage is strong enough to contain them and to provide for a balanced and fulfilling sexual life in a world of sexual disorder. The marriage bed must be a place of mutuality, the husband seeking to satisfy his wife and the wife seeking to satisfy her husband. Marriage is not a place to stand up for your rights, marriage is a decision to serve the other, whether in bed or out. Abstaining from sex is permissible for a period of time if you both agree to it, and if it's for the purposes of prayer and fasting, but only for such times. Then come back together again. Satan has an ingenious way of tempting us when we least expect it. I am not, understand, commanding these periods of abstinence— I'm only providing my best counsel if you should choose them. Now, in one of the books that I've mentioned a couple of times, it's called The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex by Sheila Ray Gregoire. She says this, God made sex to be so wonderful that for a few moments, it's as if the only two people who exist in the world are you and your husband. Okay, that is my prayer for all of us. That for a few moments, it will seem to you that the only two people who exist in the world are you and your husband. Heavenly Father, as in all things, we come to learn from you. To learn how to think and to feel and to act in this private, yet very important part of our lives. Lord, we seek greater grace. We ask you to teach us to love as you love, freely giving to bless others. Help us to master this aspect of our marriages so that we as husbands and wives can receive from it all that you have planned and provided within it. Don't allow anything, especially we ourselves, to deprive us of even the slightest bit of satisfaction and blessing. May our marriages glorify you as much as any other part of our lives and being. Let them stand as a testimony that what you ordained is indeed very good. We ask We ask it, Lord, for your glory in our lives and in Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you again for listening. (laughs) And next time, for a whole different topic, we will be talking about how to capture those teachable moments, especially as the holidays are coming, how we can capture those teachable moments with our kids. Um, You know, we have an incredible opportunity coming up to turn their thoughts and their hearts towards God. I want us to learn how to make the most of it. Now, if you found this episode helpful, please consider leaving a short review and sharing the podcast with a few friends who you think would like to be um, in on what we're talking about. And make a deeper connection between God's Word and their everyday lives. And once again, I'm on Instagram at Kelly Grace. and for a great resource, 25 Powerful Tips for Creating a Better Marriage Now, you can visit kellyjgrace.com forward slash marriage, and you'll find that resource there. Well, again, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.